It's that time of the year when it's your opportunity to get your questions answered by Jeff Shore. So stay tuned on this episode of The Buyer's Mind. Welcome to The Buyer's Mind, where we take a closer look deep inside your customer's decision-making mechanism to reverse engineer the perfect sales presentation. Now, please welcome your host, Jeff Shore. So welcome to The Buyer's Mind, the podcast where we are curious about how our customers think and how we can meet their needs best. And so since you've been asking questions, I'm going to take the questions you've been asking and present them to our host, Jeff Shore. I'm Paul Murphy, the producer of the show. So Jeff, we're going to start with Naomi L, who asks, which is better? Keep searching for your ideal clients or keep the difficult ones? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a good question. And the answer is uh, yes, <laughs> you should keep searching for your ideal clients and you should keep the difficult ones until you've got all the business that you can handle. Right. So, look, look frankly, I'm choosy. I, I, I'm at a point in my career or the career here at Shore Consulting where we could choose not to work with customers or we just don't find good alignment. And by the way, that doesn't necessarily make them difficult, uh, but it, we just can't do our best work where we don't have good alignment on on values and processes and even goals. But my advice would be to define what a difficult client is, uh, not by the uh, specific person or a company, but by the attributes. What are the attributes that you want to stay away from? Because that can help you in your search for new clients. You don't want to just cast a net there to take any client that you can. You want to be able to target out those prospects that you want to do business with, where you have a tremendous amount of uh, alignment and where, frankly, you will enjoy it the most. When you're enjoying working with people, they will enjoy that right back. Great answer. So, Jeff, the next question comes from Juan C., who asks, I'm currently interviewing for my dream job. Do you have any tips or help when interviewing? Yeah, well, well, first of all, good luck uh, to you, Juan. I hope it goes well. But I, I would argue that uh, a job interview is a sales presentation. So you really have to ask yourself the question, what is the person across the desk looking for? Right. What would they be looking for in a great sales presentation? They'd be looking for strong energy, high achievement drive, creativity, stellar follow-up skills. I mean, if you're applying for a sales job, then you want to display those sales attributes. And so I see a lot of salespeople, they'll go into an interview in a very, well, I'm in a business office here and it's all quiet and stoic. And they'll carry that energy into the office. It's not very exciting. That's not what the person across the desk is looking for. They're looking for somebody who is upbeat, positive, energetic. And you don't have to be coming out of your skin, but you want to be able to display to that hiring manager the same level of energy that they would want you to display uh, to a prospect, to a client. But I would also suggest get out of the box. Don't do the same thing that everybody else does. I once, uh, in a job interview once, I was interviewing a potential salesperson, and we got into a conversation about our mutual love for the San Francisco Giants. And after the interview, the guy drops off at the office a baseball bat and he's taken a black Sharpie and said, Jeff, I'm going to hit home runs for you, Mike. And he just drops it off at the office. Now that's outside the box. And it's a way that, what does it prove to me? It proves to me his creativity, his achievement drive, his follow-up skills, his timeliness, and it's all good. So ask yourself, what does this person want out of a salesperson? And then be that person in the interview. 
I think it also showed his listening skills. Sure. Uh, he was very attuned. Right. So. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Hey, so the next question comes from David P., who asks, and this is a question I've got for you as well. Yeah. What's your book list look like? Well, I mean, I'm kind of unusual, I guess. At, at any given time, I'm reading through several books at the same time. And then I've always got a queue of books ready. I, I don't read a lot of sales books unless they're written by friends or colleagues that I really respect. People like um, Anthony Iannarino, Jeb Blount, Mark Hunter, Jeffrey Gittimer. Uh, uh, but for the most part, I don't read a lot of sales books uh, just because, quite frankly, Boy, uh, there are a lot of not so good sales books out there. I read a lot of psychology, a lot of mindset books, and uh, those author heroes, uh, Daniel Kahneman, who we've talked about a lot here on the podcast, uh, Seth Godin, uh, Daniel Pink, uh, those people who just get your mind thinking in a different direction. Uh, Dan Gilbert, um, uh, just people that are just going to sort of uh, take you at a place where, where you otherwise would not go on your own. I also read a lot of biographies. I like reading about people and their stories. It could be historical characters. Uh, it could be contemporary business, politics. Uh, I'm just finishing um, Bob Spitz's uh, biography of Ronald Reagan. Very uh, interesting, very raw book on uh, Ronald Reagan recently read um, the biography of Martin Luther by uh, Eric Metaxas. Absolutely fascinating about one of the most unheralded uh, uh, men of uh, to ever live, quite frankly, um, unheralded outside of the church realm, at, at least. But really, really interesting um, fiction. I do love fiction. Any uh, Amor Tolls is my new favorite writer, a gentleman in Moscow, one of the best books I've read in the last five years. And then I also have some guilty pleasure book. It's true. If I'm on a plane and my, I just need a mental escape, I, I admit it. I read Jack Reacher books. And, and I, I wouldn't read the Jack Reacher series, except that I found out that uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, that's his guilty pleasure as well. And if it's good enough for Malcolm Gladwell, well, it's good enough for me. Well, of course, Cal Newport is uh, a hero for us here at the Buyer's Mind as well. It's really uh, true. Yeah, thanks for mentioning deep, him. There's no question about it. Cal Newport has changed my life, literally. Yeah. Between deep work and digital minimalism, I even went back a little bit further. So good they can't ignore you. Really, really fascinating stuff. Definitely. So uh, in case you haven't read any Cal Newport, Jeff and I both recommend him. Mm -hmm. The next question isn't really so much of a question as it is a statement from Andrew W. And he says... There's too much competition in my market. What do you do with that? Uh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> There's too much competition in every market. Uh, but I would argue that what if there were no competition? Well, you'd be out of a job, right? I mean, your company wouldn't need you if there was no competition. You'd have a total monopoly. And I would argue that it's not that there's too much competition. It's that the competition that is out there, it all sounds the same. Right. Every value proposition sounds like every other value proposition. So I would argue it's not that there's too much competition. It's it's the question is, what are you doing to stand out and not look like all of the rest of the competition? I guess that's really what my concern here is. It has to do with the with how we stand out. And I'm just thinking about it. Uh, a salesperson that I know, somebody sent me this video. It was really great. Uh, he's uh, selling homes, and uh, this this customers that he uh, are thinking about putting a pool in their home, and and he wanted to give them a sense of what it's like to live in a home with a pool. So he he went home, he grabbed his swimsuit, and he came back, and he filmed a video, literally jumping into a pool, saying, "This could be you in a short time," and coming up and saying, uh, "You know, who's are you ready to dive in with me?" I mean, that sort of thing. But look. 
does it necessarily get you a sale? No. Is it memorable? Yeah. Because you don't look like every other the com competitor. So I would ask you, I would charge you, for those of you who are thinking there's too much competition, uh, how do you stand out so differently from the competition, not just because you're a nice guy. There are a lot of nice guys out there. How do you stand out so differently that they can't forget you? That's the Cal Newport advice. Be so good that they can't ignore you. Great response. Hey, so Tyler L., who's a sales manager, uh, has this for you. My customers are shopping tons of different offerings. What are the key ways that my salespeople can stand out from the competition? Well, I think a lot of it we just answered with Andrew's question, but I would say number one, the number one way to stand out is learn what every other salesperson does and then don't do that. I mean, seriously, it's like we can't stand out if we're going to look the same. So that that's really is where I would start. And and uh, Tyler, if you're a sales manager, my recommendation is that you are asking your sales professionals that question. What does every other salesperson do? What does typical look like in our industry? And then, great. How do we blow that up and not do those things? One other piece of advice I would give to you as a sales leader is that you've got to coach your salespeople to a serve-first mentality. It's, how can I improve this person's life? If you cannot improve this person's life, then you should not be doing what you are doing. And, and we've got to look at it from that side. It's not, how do I sell? How do I make my quota? How do I get my commission? It's, how do I serve? And one piece of advice along those lines Treat your prospects as if they were your repeat customers. Treat those that you hope to buy from you as if you were dealing with people who have already purchased from you, and it'll change the way that you take care of them. Well, and Andrew, one of the things that you've been pushing ever since we started the podcast back in 2017 is using video. Mm -hmm. um, it's easy enough to do a video text to people and and other things. Uh, would you like to mention anything about that? Yeah, it's it's again, it's the idea of standing out. It shouldn't be high tech. It shouldn't be cutting edge, but it is because nobody else is doing it. So if you want to leg up, uh, go do something that proves to your client, I'm willing to out hustle, out work, out creative, out discomfort my competitors. And I think video text messaging is a great way to do that. Okay. So this is not uh, from me, but from Angie A, but I'm curious too. Do you get tired of being on the road? Because I, I know three weeks out of every month, you are on the road. Do you ever get tired of being on the road? Uh, yeah, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> yes, uh, it can't be grueling, but I would look at it and say there are aspects of every job that are difficult and sometimes, um, undesirable. Um, look, look what, what do you do? It, it can be difficult. There's no question about it. And there are times I admit it. If, if I'm flying out on a Monday and flying home on a Thursday, it, it is likely that you're going to find uh, cranky Jeff, right? The, the cranky point of my week is probably Thursday late afternoon, walking through an airport uh, on the way to get on a plane to come home. And you'd think at that point, I'd be really happy because I'm coming home. But the reality is I'm worn out, right? I've been spent. I've been giving and giving and and uh, and, and working with people all week long. And I love it. It's absolutely great. But But I'm emotionally spent. And that makes me sometimes emotionally weak. So I'll walk through an airport and I'll just 
you know, there'll be four people walking abreast in front of me and and I'll just be like, uh, some of us literally have a plane to catch. Do you see the airplanes around her? Or, or, you know, I'll just hear the kids, the, the toddler. And I was like, it's called a pacifier. Buy one and shove it in that kid's mouth. So I, it, it's the worst of me coming out. It really, really is. And I don't like it very much. Um, I, I don't think that's the norm when I'm traveling, but on my worst days, that's what it looks like. What, what's the key? Well, the key for me is to always prepare for the worst. Right. I always have to prepare for the worst. So there are times when I'll be on a plane and my headphones will be, will be blasting music. I mean, really loud just to drown out the din of everything that's going on around me. But I, I always have work to do uh, that I can do during a delay. I always have a book I can read. I always have some way to use the time productively. If I'm just on the wrong flight and I'm wedged right in there and the best that I can do is hold my tablet in front of me so I can read a book, well, so be it. That's what I'm going to do. It's not going to change my conditions by getting upset about it. Uh, I, I I really do try to manage that as best I can. Um, but I, I kind of would look at it this way. If travel is the price that I pay to do what I love so much, so be it. Right? Travel is just the price I pay, but what I get to do for a living, what I get to do is so cool that uh, it really diminishes the pain of the travel. Because at the end, I'm either going to work with sales professionals, sales executives, companies that I really, really enjoy working with, or I'm on a plane going home to be with my wife, my kids, my grandkids, or to play hockey. And <laughs> either way, I win. It's all good. I can remember when I was younger being jealous of people that were traveling all the time thinking, they get paid to fly, they get paid to eat out, and they get to stay in hotel rooms where it's, you know, just fancy quiet. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that is not the picture at all, is it? <laughs> well, yeah, flying is uh, the airplane and airport experience uh, isn't fun. Um, eating out, you know, when you eat 15 meals out uh, in a week, uh, trust me, it, it's uh, less than enjoyable after a while. And uh, after all of the different hotels that I've stayed in, uh, believe me, it, it takes a lot uh, to impress me in a hotel room. That doesn't mean that I'm, I'm snooty or snobby. It's just like, to me, is it clean? <laughs> is, it, is it a comfortable bed? Does it have a comfortable pillow? Okay, I'm good. So I, I don't, uh, it, it's it's really not that, ooh, glamour time. Now look, when I start booking more gigs in Paris, uh, when I start doing a whole lot more work in in uh, 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 Siena, in Tuscany, and in, in, in Central Italy, okay, well, may, then maybe I'll feel uh, differently. Uh, but uh, you know, for the most part, um, it, it's that the travel is just the price you pay in order to do what you love to do. Hey, I just got an idea. Thanks to you, uh, we should do a podcast in Tuscany, and uh, you and I should travel there to record. Yeah, the I, I think our audience knows that that uh, you we you are not with me when we do these. You you are perfectly capable of doing these uh, from your home uh, office there at Murph, and uh, so that's fine. I'll go to Tuscany, and you can record from Colorado. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so I've got a question also from Paul J, and he says. You say that we should really focus on getting to know the customer early on. And I agree. But what about the customers who just want to dive into the facts, the data, the pricing, etc., right out of the gate? Yeah. Well, listen, why would they want to do that? I mean, I think that's where it starts. Why do they want to dive into the facts and the pricing and all of the information analysis right out of the gate? Because I look at it, and this is a question that I ask sales professionals a lot. Does everyone have a story? 
right? Does every customer, does every prospect have a story? And of course, the answer is yes. Everybody agrees. Everyone agrees that everyone has a story. Next question, do they want to share it? Now, what's interesting is that a lot of salespeople at first glance will say, no, they don't want to share their story. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that. I think they absolutely want to tell their story. They just may not want to share it with you. Not yet, anyway. See, everybody has a story and everybody wants to share their story, but they only want to share their story with people that they can trust, with people that they that they believe want to hear it and can help them with it. So when we say, what do we do with the customers who want to dive into the facts and the data and the pricing right out of the gate? Well, I would argue it's a trust issue. People divert to the facts because they're just not ready to open up. So, look, you can't just ignore them and say, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to answer those questions. Go ahead, address those questions. But that doesn't absolve you from learning the story. So one way to do this is to early on in the process, use a technique that I call the permission to question. Hey, can I ask you a couple of quick questions? I just want to make sure I'm pointing you in the right direction. You're asking permission. You're letting them know it's just a couple of questions. It's not going to take very long. And you're letting them know the reason we're doing it is to help you. And if we could do that, that allows us to slide into understanding their story without having to get into all the data and logic, uh, logistics and, and analysis. When you move people too far away from their story and into the logic, you're going to have something. It's going to cause people to try and buy in a way that goes against their nature. We want to buy emotionally, but we're asking a quest, bunch of questions and getting them a bunch, a bunch of answers that only speak to our logic to our analysis, to that left side of the brain. We want to get into the right side of the brain. And we do that by asking about their story. Tell me why you're thinking about making a move in the first place. Tell me why you're thinking about purchasing in the first place. What, what prompted that conversation? If we can get back into their history a little bit and understand the pain points, everything changes. Well, and I remember asking uh, our one of our coworkers, Ryan Taft, who uh, does a lot of training. Um, when an engineer comes in and starts asking a lot of questions about data and facts and all those kinds of things, uh, instead of really kind of expressing their story, you kind of go, "Well, they're an engineer; they want to know that stuff." But there is an underlying emotion that he mentioned that surprised me, and that's the fear of. What if something's wrong with how this is created, built, or whatever it might be? And I was like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. There is an emotion there that can be gotten to even through uh, diving into facts and data and pricing if we're willing to ask the questions, like you said, of our customers. Yeah, there's no question about it. There, there's no doubt. But let's get it in an order. Wherever we can, we want to know the backstory first because the backstory will give us context into all of those other questions that they are asking. All right. So the last question that I have is from Ryan J. And he says, I'm seeing a lot of people who just don't seem that excited to purchase. How do I build a greater sense of enthusiasm? Hmm. Well, look, I don't want to be too direct. <laughs> I don't want to be uh, a, a, a too uh, brutal here. But Ryan, my friend, it, it's not in your customer's job description to be excited. It's not part of their gig to walk through your door with energy and excitement and to be able to say uh, right from the very beginning, uh, um, hey, here I am. This is going to be great. Can can you help me with this? Uh, that's, that's just not their job. 
Uh, I would look at it from the perspective that um, you control the emotional altitude, right? I mean, you control that that energy. You, it's a unilateral decision. You made that decision before they walked through the door. If you made that decision unilaterally, then you are also the one who is going to control how this all comes together. Uh, you're going to control uh, what the emotional altitude is going to look like. So I just want to argue it's not your customer's job description to be excited. You control that. You do that. And I think that'll make all the difference in the world. I count it as something as a, of a game. And then um, it's a game you don't lose, right? Uh, at the end of the day, uh, the emotional altitude goes up because you had it go up. Well, Jeff, as I look, the mailbag is empty. <laughs> so we have done our job for this part of the year. But every fifth week that we have uh, that opportunity, we try to open the mailbag and uh, take the opportunity to answer any questions that you, our audience, might have. Feel free to write us at ask at jeffshore.com and we'll compile those for the next time we open the mailbag. And hopefully you'll hear questions answered there. Also, if you listen to us on YouTube, please like, subscribe, and hit that notification bell so you know when we've posted new content. Speaking of new content, we've started a new series on YouTube called 5-Minute Sales Training with Jeff Shore. So once again, thank you for listening to The Buyer's Mind, and remember to go out there and change someone's world. 